the best medicine, the cheapest therapy, the shortest distance between two people, the most reliable gauge of human nature, a force for democracy. What has earned all those labels and many more from some of the deepest thinkers in history? Laughter. Of course, what else connects us better and faster than a good laugh? I love the line from Ricky Gervais. If you can laugh in the face of adversity, you're bulletproof. Wow, do we need that now? Laughter is the topic for my two guests, both extremely smart, both inspiring for different reasons, both former college football players. Gary Gullman, ex-Boston College Eagle, creates laughter for a living. No, what's what's funny? What's funny to me is that you remember your first laugh because I do too, and I I think that's I think that's significant because we we everybody talks about how they they remember when they they had their first kiss, when they they got their first girlfriend or or sex of course their wedding, but the first laugh is is not something that I mean it's only a matter of time before there's a podcast discussing my first laugh. Dr. Myron Roll, former FSU Seminole, explains what laughter does to our brains and why it feels so good. And also facial expression, as you had mentioned earlier, uh, this is also controlled from the brainstem in that central processing area. So a lot of times when people laugh, they just have, if people say their face lights up, as the muscles of their face just starts to sort of open up and eyes widen and things like that. Myron's also going to share how laughter has helped him adapt on the football field and the front lines of the COVID-19 fight. My first guest is Gary Gullman, brilliant, hilarious, one of my favorite comedians. He's been on every major late night show, done a bunch of specials. Gary is also a symbol of hope for those struggling with depression and anxiety. In his latest special, The Great Depression, he handles some very dark stuff, including his stay in the psych ward with great humanity, vulnerability, and hilarity. In the special, Gary also delivers a lot of the smartest, funniest material on sports that I've ever heard. I fell in love with basketball almost immediately because, because basketball just fits my personality. It, it, it still does. Basketball is the only sport you can practice by yourself. <laughs> I, spent a lot of time practicing basketball by myself and basketball also fits me because it's the only sport where if somebody so much as slaps you on the wrist they stop the game stop the game separate everyone and let you make two easy shots while everyone else is forced to watch quietly as if to say, think about what you did. Well, the topic today is laughter because I think it's universal. It, it strengthens bonds. It builds relationships. And I think it's needed now as much as it's ever been needed. So laughter. So for those of us that will never know the feeling of being on stage and getting laugh after laugh just in waves from strangers. Describe what that feels like. Well, I, I often put it in basketball terms. Now, I am tall enough and had enough hops in high school and college to dunk a basketball. And I I mean, I was only dunking in, in high school games and in uh, rec league and, and intramural games, but it is exhilarating. And that's the closest I could say to making a room full of strangers laugh. But I will also say that everyone has, or almost everyone has ha made their classroom laugh or their coworkers laugh or, or more than, even sometimes one person. It feels so great to, to have a laugh and, and why it's been called the shortest distance between two people, I know, which is a Victor Borg of what the, you, you use as your motto. And, and I think it's, uh, it's spot on because although there are other universal languages like food and perhaps beverage, yeah. I think laughter is the most fun. I mean, I, I just think it's the most yeah. fun. And it does do things to your brain. 
um, that that can recall years later. You can still get that same high off the one laugh you got, which I think is the the beauty of a laugh. It's it's short lived, but it also has lasting power. Certainly, and I, and I I think that, and I I, I wrote down a, a bunch of notes, and so I'll, I'll try to spread them out over the the interview. But one thing I regarding regarding language that I was that I was thinking was that dogs will will turn over and show you their belly when when they don't want you to hurt them and and to show that they're peaceful and and they make themselves vulnerable and i i really think that that laughter is a is a similar a similar technique to show people that you mean them no harm and and also trying to trying to make somebody laugh is a, is another way to to say no i'm 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 here to to make you happy i'm i i like you i mean that's 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 what it always came down to for for me especially outside of my own house i, I recognized early on in my life that i could lighten the mood in my home and i would there was a reward from making my family laugh and i found that i could could use that in school and in my neighborhood that that was my my way of of making friends and feeling feeling liked and, and appreciated and and un- unfortunately i i needed more than than just the kids in the neighborhood and I, I i or or i found out how much better it feels to get a room full of strangers to laugh very very early in my in my life and 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 like a a person who is is jonesing i i i needed that but but most people can can be satisfied and content with being the funny person or amongst their their friends. And I, I wanted to ask you if you found yourself at a young age, because I know how much you appreciate comedy and, and humor and you have good taste in it, if if only because you you enjoy my work. I wonder <laughs> if you, like me, sort of arranged your life to be around funny people and to that you sort of sought out the people who shared the same comedians the same shows for me it was it was saturday night live and and those 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 characters on saturday night live that that and steve martin was a big one when i was very young mm. when i was six or seven he came out with those those albums and and the people who got those and got the movies starring bill murray those were the people i i sought out and i i surrounded myself with intentionally and and i was deliberate about it yeah, no, I think that one way to be happier is to is to be around funny people. They'll say that. And when I was a kid, it was the George Carlin records my parents listened to that I didn't I didn't really understand. They loved Carlin. I could see that he was funny, but I, it was way over my head as a young kid. So it was uh, the Little Rascals early early on, and then things oh, like Rowan and Martin's Laughing, the Carol Burnett show. She was an acquaintance of my parents, and so we would always watch her show and the sketch comedy of. Harvey Corman and Tim Conway would have my brother and I rolling on the floor. And, and oh, that was boy. such an awesome shared experience with the family to, to have those laughs. And you know, later on, obviously, the Steve Martin albums and, and things like that. But but yeah, just the, the power to share a laugh with your family and to make others laugh. I, I wasn't a professionally funny person. I never have been. But I do remember, Gary, getting the very first laugh. And I was about seven years old. We lived in Illinois. I was into tall buildings. Is that funny, Illinois? I guess maybe it is a funny place. No, but... what's what's funny? What's funny to me is that you remember your first laugh because I do too, and I I think that's I think that's significant because we we everybody talks about how they they remember when they they had their first kiss, when they they got their first girlfriend or or the, the, the sex, of course, their wedding. But the first laugh is is not something that I mean. It's only a matter of time before there's a podcast discussing my first laugh, or the first thing you laughed at, and and I, I think that's significant that you remember it and I remember it, and and it's only a sample of two. But I bet you a lot of people remember the first time they made everybody laugh. I, I think, so, yeah, so I think the first time you probably laughed was for most people it was probably a fart. But but the first time that I that I got a <laughs> laugh. I was seven. I loved tall buildings. So we went into the John Hancock building, which was second only to the Sears Tower. Yeah, you know, with the one in Chicago, the John Hancock building in Chicago. Go go up to the top, view Chicago, great experience. And now we get in the elevator to go down. 
and it's crowded with adults. And I'm seven years old, and I'm on, on a high from seeing this view. And the elevator starts to go down quickly, and I get that whoosh feeling. And I announce in a very excitable, high-pitched seven-year-old voice, I can feel it. I can feel it in my p- And there was kind of a pause, and the adults were looking at each other. Is it okay to laugh at this seven-year-old kid making a dick joke? And uh, oh it, tur- it turns out that it was. They, they all laughed, and I didn't know what was funny about that. I was just expressing what I was experiencing. And I looked around, and the elevator opens. They go out. They had a good story to tell. And my family had a story to tell, to my great embarrassment, like for the next 30 years. But that was the first time I got a laugh, and it was, it was like... It was a high at seven years old. Wow, it is a high, and and I mine mine isn't as funny. But I remember my I was in first grade, and the teacher asked what a chick was, and all the kids said a baby chicken. And then, and I didn't know anything about timing, but I I just I just knew that I had to wait a moment, and then I said as loud as I could, or a girl, and, <laughs> and everybody laughed, and, and I was like, this is, this is the life, this is the, the life, everybody, I don't, I don't know that anybody liked me, but it felt like everybody liked me after I, after I said that, and the teacher tried to contain herself, it was, I mean, it's not as good as I can feel it in my Venus, but man, it, it, uh, <laughs> I'm, 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 I don't know which feeling was better, the one down below or the feeling of the laughter, but I, I, it was, I, I think it's the, uh, it's the right. forbidden laugh, right? It's the one where you're not supposed yeah. to have. I mean, I have many cases on the job where it's, you get the office giggles and, and Herb Street and I will start laughing. Either it's on the set, you just you cannot make eye contact or it's over. In the booth, we've had a few tightrope walks where it's just we're on the edge of just falling off and not being able to continue most broadcasters who've been around for a while have had those experiences but yeah it's those forbidden laughs where you you know you're not supposed to but you and you better pull it back or, or you're going to get in trouble those somehow feel great but it was also this approval that you got from your family and from strangers and and i, I remember in an interview george carlin talked about how he he was sort of addicted or in love with the feeling of feeling smart and and clever isn't he clever when the grown-ups in his life would say isn't he clever and and i think that's a that's a great that's a great feeling and i bet you that there has to be some sort of evolutionary aspect of it and that that brings me to another thing that i took down as a as a note that that laughter is this incredible um a release valve for for tension and and we play on that as comedians and and building tension and and re- releasing tension but i i think that's that's also why it's it's evolutionary important evolutionarily important and and why we we are are so drawn to people who who make us laugh i mean the thing that 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 keeps coming back about Abraham Lincoln is is one his his melancholy but also his incredible world-class wit and and humor mm. and and the same with with Mark Twain who was a, an, another an, another dark sort of melancholy person whose whose wit was just legendary and and I I think that there there aren't a lot of writers from that period who who hold up and who are still widely read and are are still enjoyed by by people young and old and, and I think Lincoln and, and Twain are, are two people and and the the bottom line was that they they made people laugh. Yeah, I think the darkness and the humor are probably intertwined in the minds of lots of people. We can get into more of that later. Why so many comics uh, are are so tortured and have these considerable dark sides as well as having the tremendous gift of, of lightness as well. I wanted to go back to the, the early laugh because my wife, Jennifer, who is a, a partner in this production and also obviously my, my life partner, talks about a laugh that she had as a third grader that still makes her laugh almost, I don't want to date her, almost 50 years later. 
And in the neighborhood, they had this, this girl named Florence, who was a friend of hers, who fell down in her driveway and broke her leg. Don't ask me how. But she got one of those very heavy, you know, plaster of Paris casts. This is mid-70s circuit. So you go to school yeah. with your big cast on, and everybody tries to make you feel better by getting a pen out and signing the cast. And so you sign things like, oh, what a bummer, get better soon. And Jennifer took her turn to sign the cast and noticed that just before she had signed, her neighbor and friend in third grade had signed the cast and written to this girl, Florence, oh no, there goes Flo on the cast. And that's an odd <laughs> thing for a third grader to write to make her feel better. And it turns out that the, the neighbor who wrote that was uh, Judd Apatow. Oh my word. The producer of your brilliant HBO special, The Great yeah. Depression. And, and Judd and, and Jennifer shared a backyard. He made her laugh a few times. He was funny even as a third grader, but she still 50 years later will laugh at, oh no, there goes Flo. And, and that's, oh. that's the power of a laugh like that many years later, by the way, from a third grader, which was foretold his, his comedic talents. But Judge, Judd had a great heart back then, too, by the way. He built a house out of a cardboard box for Jennifer's pet turtle, cut a hole out, and then put some plastic there so that the turtle would have a view out the window. That's the kind of heart that he had as a kid. So I thought I'd share that because you and he have a professional relationship. Yeah, well, we've become friends, and and he he is really a thoughtful, kind, decent man and and my my rabbi friend put it best when he said judd apatow is not in love with show business he's in love with comedy and and that and that show and i think that's what's cool I, you i respect that you are not only super smart and gifted but you're a grinder and i mean that as the highest compliment you <laughs> it, it, folks yeah. need to understand that gary's choice of words meticulous specific the right word in the right order, obviously with the timing and delivery, any comic sweats that stuff, but your, your love of words and your process and these bits that are months or years in the making, people have no idea what serious business laughter is when it's, it's broken down the way. I have just much respect the more I learn about kind of your method and, and the patient approach that you've taken. Here's, here's another thing that I wrote down to share with you, and I, wanna, I wanted to see if you get this feeling too, but there's there's the feeling when you get a laugh and it's ecstasy but there's also this feeling now that i've i've gotten over the years and and since i first started to write down ideas for jokes and it's that i get a similar feeling to when you solve a puzzle whether it be a crossword puzzle or or one of these thinking puzzles or or riddles there's a feeling in my head that when the right word or the right phrasing or the right idea or analogy comes into my head, it feels so good. So that I'm, I'm sure you have this in sports because sports is, is so often trying to relate an idea that people haven't experienced personally and, and make them understand what is, what is going on here or the significance of things that maybe they hadn't they hadn't noticed in the observations and, and, and also you, you have these moments on, on college game day where you're waiting to weigh in and you must think of something and you think, Oh my gosh, this, I can't wait to say this. I can't wait to say this. Yeah. And that feels really good. It's, it's the, the sort of the, I, I, I wrote down what it, what it felt like that it was, that it was something sort of pre high, that when you've ordered your meal and you, you recognize what you ordered on your waiter's tray and, <laughs> and you're like, oh my gosh, that, those fajitas, they have to be for me and they're about to arrive. And that's the feeling I get when I think of something and I, I can't wait to say that. And I, I wonder if you get that on, on college game day or you, or you have the perfect rejoinder to, to Lee or, or Kirk or, or one of the other gentlemen on the show. Yeah, I think the pre-high is a perfect way to put it. And you have to enjoy the pre-highs 
and not just wait for the highs because if the process has yeah. to be enjoyable and fun. Game day wasn't formally yeah. scripted, but you obviously think about how you want to say things and you have, have little you have, you have note cards just like what I'm using today here, little bullet points on there. Oh, I love it. And yeah, you would you would think of that'll that'll play well to those guys. There you go. My my I, my penmanship is much better than yours, sir. By the way, I, <laughs> yes. what what you have on the page is smarter, but mine is more orderly. So I that, that <laughs> I, I have very very good penmanship. But yeah, I mean, I think I would sit in my room on a Friday night, late late at night because I'm nocturnal. I only get a few hours sleep before game day when I. When I did that show, I get a much better wake-up call now just doing the games on Saturday night. But, yeah, you would feel great because you're on to something that you knew would play well to them, but also to the eight or 10,000 kids behind you that had showed up to stare at the back of heads on a Saturday morning, and they were probably hungover and tired or sleepless or whatever. And so you wanted to make them feel good. And playing to the live crowd and, and entertaining them was as close as you can get in TV to what what you go through. And that's why that was so much fun. If game day hadn't been a live show and you hadn't gotten that feedback where the audience was a character in the show, I'm sure I would have given it up a long time ago because in a studio, it just doesn't, doesn't feel the same way. Your sports material, by the way, I have to say this is as funny as anybody's ever. I, I, it's, I know, I know a lot of guys try it and they maybe have a line, your entire bits, which folks must watch the great depression. If you haven't yet on HBO, because a lot of it is, devoted to sports, you as this, the physically gifted but reluctant athlete. What I didn't realize was that my high school coach had sent videos of my games to a bunch of colleges, and then these college coaches came to my high school to recruit me to play for them. And I I wound up accepting a scholarship to Boston College because the head coach of the Boston College Eagles football team two years prior had coached Heisman Trophy winner Doug Flutie. And then two years later, he was recruiting future participation trophy advocate (laughs) Gary Goldman. I mean, I, I, I love that you're, you're, you're showed that vulnerable side. I also love that it's just really funny stuff about sports. Well, thanks. I, I, I remember when I was in, in high school, everybody wanted to be like, like uh, Bosworth, Brian Bosworth. He was so aggressive and he was so violent <laughs> and, and he was so outspoken. And we all wanted to have that type of personality and, and, and aggressiveness. And, and I saw how people reacted to that. And I felt that that isn't me. And I hate myself because that isn't me. And I, it took me into my 40s, which whenever it happens is great. I wish it didn't happen this, this late to accept that I was never going to be an aggressive person. And I was going to be an athletic person who was going to let a lot of aggressive people down and a lot of really feisty, scrappy, smaller men down. And, and to actually go out there and say this, and then the audience not be turned off or boo me, or I don't, I don't know why I was so afraid to share this part of me, but it was much easier, and this will sound like hyperbole or I'm exaggerating, it was much easier for me to admit that I had spent weeks in the psych ward for my mental illness than it was to admit that I really didn't belong on a football field and I was overwhelmed by aggressive men and that I still when when coach Bicknell offered me a scholarship I still had a blankie in my in my room <laughs> that I, that I treasured and and it just didn't make any sense and and I I think my drive to be a football star was based on being accepted by men's men by the man's man, and mm-hmm. there, there is no bigger man's man than a than a college football coach, and he accepted me. And instead, I should have been trying to find a way to accept myself as as a sensitive, timid young man. And and so I I think I, I think the first therapy session I had in college, and the first therapy session I had. In my 30s, with with my second therapist, I've had two 
excellent therapist in my life. They were basically telling me, why can't you accept yourself? I went to this, this man named Dr. Tom McGinnis at Boston College, who was part of the University Counseling Services, at the end of double sessions because I was, I was breaking down. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. And I went to him and he said, why don't you just quit the football team? And I, it was basically because I don't want to admit that I'm, I'm a sensitive, timid, soft guy. And, and that was what essentially, and it took us a year of meeting every, every week to, to finally say, okay, I, I, I'm at least going to quit the football team, whether I accept myself for being a soft, timid person, I'm not going to torture myself every afternoon with this mandate on my on my manhood this this referendum on my did i say mandate i meant referendum i always confuse the two a referendum on my on my masculinity so this goes off the top of of laughter but i will bring it back to that by saying this the football team knew every player knew that i could not be counted on to <laughs> execute the plays we were given but i could be counted on to make them doubled over in laughter on the sidelines um, during double sessions and during locker rooms and after meetings. And, and that was how I survived that year of football. I was the funniest person on the, on the team and the guys sought me out for impressions and observations and, and good lines. And, and, and that, was how I, that was how I showed my belly as as a as a human being and showed these guys that that uh please please don't point out to everyone that um i can't be relied on to to make a infective block on on alignment but every team every team needs a funny guy so even though it was torture for you you probably could have had a four-year career just playing that role of nothing else but i understand why you quit by the way this was this is bc in 89, uh, yeah. just the post Doug Flutie, but, but Glenn Foley was, was your quarterback. Yeah. There was a bunch of future NFL guys in that team. That was a big time program. You, you had a beautiful mullet in the team photo, your shoulder pads were like <laughs> this wide. I mean, those, those jumbo yeah. shoulder pads That's... that were like double the size of what they wear now. Yes. So you looked the part, Gary, you looked the part, even though deep inside yes. you, you felt inadequate. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always felt, I said, I built this, this very convincing real man costume <laughs> through, through, through diligence. I mean, the, the, the great thing about me as a, as a, as a player was that if you told me we need you to do these sprints and exercises all summer and lift these weights, I would do it. And, and then I would get on the field and there's something more than just being strong and, and agile. There's but a, you there's had a, that rocky moment. I, I've heard you talk about the fact that you, you trained your ass off, you built your body up yes. and you were ready to go. Yeah. You, you ran up the steps and then you, you did all this and then you got knocked out in the first round. But at least you had that rocky moment, man, where you knew you had yes. done what you needed to do to be ready. That's more than most of us have. So, <laughs> Yes. They, they never tell the stories of the Rockies who get knocked out on the first punch or, <laughs> or decide the night before that they're they're going to they're going to fake an, an intestinal illness. Among comics, I'm sure you have the finest free throw form, right foot in front, knee crouch, <laughs> eyes on the rim, tremendous follow through. And, and I know you're you're proud of your your free throw percentage, if, if nothing else, about your basketball game when you play, which is very good. Yes, yes, yes. I I I have always contended that that free throw percentage is a direct is in direct proportion to childhood loneliness. I know what you mean. I, I, 94% is both admirable and terribly sad because it <laughs> means that you have been a lot of hours with nobody else's around yes. doing the, the yeah. solitary act, which 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 the action just stops and you kind of just stand there and shoot a ball. But you did it well. You did it well, at least. Thank you. Yes, yes, yeah. I, I, I was also wondering. I, I wanted to ask you because there, there, are, there are all these different types of of laughs, and you, you've been working with these guys for decades. And so, 
and I, and I have friends from comedy for decades. I have friends from my life, literally from the time I was five or six years old. So there's the type of laugh you get when the setup to the to the punchline is, and often the punchline is just mentioning somebody you come across who looks like somebody from 30 years ago or acts like somebody from 30 years ago. You say that name and the laugh is, is so dense and yeah. deep and long and, and provokes other laughs and commentary. And, and it's so fulfilling. So that there's, there, that, that's a, that's a different. Oh, that's awesome. Isn't different, that beautiful? I, 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 yeah. And I, and I know comedian, I know one particular comedian who was, had been doing it for so long that he was relating to me the pitch and timber of, of laughs and telling me <laughs> what the predominating or, or, or dominant gender of my laughs were on a certain night. And, and I, I wonder, but I know the feeling of the laughs that I get when a, a friend of mine says something from when we were, were five. And it can be as simple as saying, I'm going to get groceries at this store that closed 35 years ago. And, and <laughs> I'm doubled over because I, I had forgotten that I even knew that. He brings that up or she brings that up. And, um, and, and so I wonder if there, there are things that, that, that the, the guys on your broadcast, oh, because you, you've been together so long, I mean, that must happen all the time. It, it does. It, they don't even have to be verbal though, Gary. I mean, you know, somebody so well, it's, it's the 25th year that I work with Kirk Herbstreit on Saturdays. I go back that long with Lee Corso, but you know, Kirk will walk into the bus. I don't see him all week. And sometimes it's not even, it's not even words. It's just a look in the eye or the way that you do kind of the handshake. If it's like this serious old white guy hand, it could be something as simple as that. And, and we'll know what that means. And we'll just start laughing and, and it, it, no words are even needed. And that, that's, what's so cool when you have those relationships that are, that are that long and that deep. I don't know your wife, Sade, as you say, not the Sade, but, but a lovely, your Sade. Right. I mean, Jennifer yeah. and I, have had so many laughs. They've been so important as a couple, helping you through really challenging, tough times. And early on, before we were even married, she was out selecting venues for the reception. I was working and she had spent that afternoon. And now we converge back at her apartment, which was in the Jefferson's building, the same building they used for the Jefferson's. And wow, it was not a deluxe apartment in the sky. So we were back there together. She was telling me what her day was like, and I was just trying to get to sleep. And then she gets up and has a violent episode of food poisoning. So there was some bad food somewhere along the along the line there. And, and she gets up and, you know, the toilet was about five feet from where I was sleeping in her bed. So it was hard to avoid it. And she's just retching in there. And, it, you know, she, with a very kind of thin, weak voice, says to me, if you loved me, you'd you'd come hold my hair back. And I managed to come up with, isn't that what rubber bands are for? <laughs> so, which I was pretty proud of on the fly. And the beautiful thing about it is that even though she felt terrible and was pissed at me, she just burst out laughing. I mean, and it made her feel a little bit better that I had been insensitive, but come up with something funny to say in the moment. And we, we still... You know, laugh about that moment, even though she should have known then who she was marrying. I'm going to try to make you laugh, yeah. but I'm not going to hold your hair back oh ever God. when you're throwing up. Yeah. So. Oh, that's great. I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think about the, the, the laughter and I, I was thinking about Sade's laughter in, in particular in that she's, she's not an easy laugh and she also has to like you to laugh at what you're saying. So I, I think from the from the the very beginning making her laugh was was very rewarding because she she has a a a, a high threshold she's not she's a generous laugher but she's not an easy laugh to to mm. get and but when she does laugh she she enjoys it so much and i also have found that there's never been a case where i have i don't try out jokes on her but sometimes i'll say what do you think of this so I guess that is trying jokes on her, but I, I tell her that I'm trying out the joke on her. What do you think of this? 
And if she laughs, I've never had a case where the audience didn't also laugh at that. And, and so that's really important. And I, I was, I was, there were two things that I, that I thought of earlier that, that because of the, the popularity of college game day and just for the fact that it started at a, at a half hour and now it, it lasts for, for hours. Forever. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but part of it is that it's a very funny show to watch. And I also think about the NBA with, with Charles and, and Kenny and, and mm-hmm. Shaq and, and Ernie. And that's a very funny show. And it's, it's the most popular, obviously, NBA broadcast and one of the more popular sports broadcasts. And, and, and it's not... I'm I'm a, I'm a terrible snob when it comes to to comedy. It's not dumb comedy that you guys are doing. It's not cheap, and it it's it's not easy laughs or cruel or anything like that. And and that laughter that people are getting is is the reason why it's popular and the reason why it's successful. And and it shows you how significant laughter is to people and and how sports has evolved over the years and 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 the broadcasting is at its at its best and the 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 color is more colorful than than ever and and i i think that's significant as far as the importance of laughter the other thing i was i was thinking of is that is that we're also drawn to people who it's they're generous with their their laughter and we're also put off by people whose laughter is is too easy, mm-hmm. and and we see that somebody laughs at something that really isn't that great, and we decide in our heads, well, they'll laugh at anything, right. and it's 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 not that big of a reward to make them them laugh. And I also know from sitting at this this comedy table in in the village of the comedy cellar, where all the comedians sit around, there are some guys who you're never going to make laugh. And they are asserting their dominance by not laughing at anyone, <laughs> and and it's infuriating. And and I I would rather not sit at the table than be around these people who are who are being who are bullying you by by not laughing or just making you feel so insecure or and so un, unloved by by not laughing. And I I think. I mean that's the, that's the the thing that I notice on on yeah. on Barclays broadcast and on your broadcast is that the guys are 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 very generous with their their laughter. Getting people to laugh though that you find funny has just been a high for me. Not that I've done it that often, but in speeches and in banquets, things like that. Uh, I once made Martin Short laugh in an Excel Express. It was an elderly passenger oh, who word. was confused about. Yeah, I mean, he's a genius. And, and we're, we're on yeah. this train and this elderly passenger was confused about which bag is hers. And with the help of a porter, she just starts grabbing everybody's luggage. And <laughs> and, and, I, and I'm just kind of like stage whisper. Yeah, sure, lady, take them, take them all. And Martin Short burst out <laughs> laughing. Not that funny a line, but the fact that Martin Short laughed at that, I've never forgotten it. Robin Williams, a guy that I was very grateful to know a little bit and spend some time with, um, when I made him laugh, an all-out belly laugh. I think that st- I can still feel that. I can still feel that high. And it's been, I don't know, 15 years or something. Yeah, it, it feels so good. And also, he's heard everything. Yeah. And you were able to, to get something in that made, that made him laugh. It's a tremendous accomplishment. And I, I also think about how you're more creative comedically when you're around people who are are laughers who are generous with their mm-hmm. laugh who you feel funny around and and that, that was actually one of my tips to to seek out and spend time and call people you feel funny around because a lot of the the germs of of an act and the, the, the germs of your voice come from from that encouragement i mean that's the other thing is that the the laughter is an encouraging when that when that teacher laughed when i said uh, chick, and when when you got your your penis laugh on the on the elevator, they're encouraging you. They're saying you are are clever. We we like you, and it and it's it's priceless, really. It's it's so intoxicating, and I I can't wait to hear what your your friend Doctor Roll is. It yes um, yes 
yeah, said says about the 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 chemical and and the 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 internal mechanisms of of laughter and what's going on because because something this fulfilling and and energizing that's the other thing that that i remember that this christmas i was i was with i go to sade's house for for christmas and i was with a lot of people that i didn't know and and i was was very quiet and i was i, I wouldn't say anxious but i i was like oh this this is um i don't feel very energized right now and then i said something and everybody laughed and i was off to the races i had one of my favorite christmases and we 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 I, they they just said at that point oh we accept you we accept you you're you're one of us now and and so i i think it's it's, it's this this in, incredible introduction that that you can make for your, for yourself by being funny or or laughing at somebody who is trying to be to be funny and and it's yeah that that and and also energy which which we're always searching for when we're tired and 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 it, and it almost makes you f feel bad that this is all i needed was to was to yeah. have somebody laugh at me for for me to sit up straighter and and to be more engaged and and to to speak with with more force it's 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 really interesting Laughter as much-needed energy, especially important these days. Uh, Gary was so generous opening up about his struggles that he's going to be part of a separate future episode focusing on depression and anxiety. You can follow him on Twitter, at Gary Gullman, where he once offered 365 straight days of joke-writing tips. Next up, one of the true scholar-athletes that I've ever covered. Myron Roll was a star defensive back at Florida State, earned a Rhodes Scholarship the same day he played in a seminal win. These days, Dr. Myron Roll is a neurosurgery resident in Massachusetts General, so he's an authority on how laughter does wonders for our brains and nervous systems and even immune systems. Well, Myron, to watch your path from FSU Seminole, where I covered some of your games, to the Rhodes Scholarship, to Oxford, to the NFL, to a career in neurosurgery. It's just been amazing. Um, thanks for making some time and a very busy schedule today. Appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. Now, maybe laughter and Myron Roll would not be linked to the minds of a lot of people in the same sentence. You tell, tell me why they could be linked, those two things. Well, uh, neurosurgery, for one, uh, is, um, you know, obviously a study of the brain and the nervous system, uh, central and peripheral nervous system. And uh, there's been so many different um, scientific discoveries, uh, and we're still actually working through it, um, where laughter germinates from. Um, and, you know, in our field, uh, there's, um, you know, a lot of crossover between laughter and what it means, the evokes emotions, uh, how laughter can be associated with seizures, it can be pathological, um, and then obviously just the intensity that comes with being a neurosurgeon, working on the brain and spine, uh, some very intense moments. Um, sometimes laughter is probably the best thing that we can do to sort of alleviate some of that pressure and even give it to our patients to allow them to cope through some of the things that they're dealing with in their families. So it plays an important role, maybe not the first thing that comes to mind, but uh, in my field, in my work every single day, uh, I experience it and um, it's been helpful for sure. But I definitely dive into that, why people call laughter such a good medicine, fast acting medicine. But let's back up. What role has, has laughter played in your life from being the youngest of a group of five brothers, to being an athlete in a high pressure situation? Um, growing up, you remember good laughs with your brothers? Remember trying to make your brothers laugh so they wouldn't beat you up? That's often the younger brother role, trying to, uh, if you can't be the biggest and strongest, you can be the most entertaining and be funny. That's right. Absolutely. You know, our family came from the Bahamas and uh, we grew up in New Jersey and I'm the last of five boys. And I remember, uh, you know, specific moments of my childhood, adolescent years with my brothers, mostly tied to and connected to humorous and, and um, you know, comedic moments, right? Uh, you know, when, when we're playing with each other or there's something that funny that happened on TV, a moment that we always recall, it's a lot of times associated with, with laughter and the feeling that comes from that experience. 
uh, even to this day, we have Zoom calls on Sunday uh, where we just talk about moments of our childhood. And, uh, you know, yeah, there's some sad moments that come up, but for the most part, the positive and the euphoric feelings that you uh, experience in some of the events together are associated uh, and sort of revolve around uh, laughter. So I, I think for me, as the youngest of five boys, um, you know, remembering some of those, uh, you know, uh, games that we played in the front yard uh, and how, you know, my older brother would go up to catch a pass one time and, and he got sort of undercut and he flipped <laughs> over and he fell and he made this incredible weird noise that we still remember to this day. <laughs> we, were, we were busting out laughing. My parents came out and thought something went, went wrong, uh, but we all were just cackling on the ground. Again, a, a moment that we'll never forget that I'll pass on to my children when they come in this world one day and again, associated around laughter and humorous events. So it was really great. That's what's amazing. You can have a laugh with, with siblings and you immediately return to the age that you were when you had that. I, I've talked to families about that and it's a great thing that you guys get on the Zoom calls and, and still share those moments. I mean, I, I think that when we see little kids laugh, it, it's they have hundreds of laughs a day. And as we get older and adults get serious and lives get heavier, we have to kind of relearn how to laugh, the kind of things that you and your brothers are having so naturally when you're kids. Absolutely. Yeah, no question. You know, I, you know, obviously the the burdens and stress of life uh, do come as you get older. You have more responsibilities, more accountability. Uh, you start to things start to become a little bit more real for you. Um, you know, you're not living sort of this fantastical, quixotic Disneyland of a life. Right. And, and, uh, and so sometimes you lose sight of um, the laughter and the joys and the moments within moments. And as children, it's just pure. It's innocent. And it just comes. And for my brothers and I, we experienced that. We loved it. We try to hold on to that. And that's why we try to recall it as much as possible, because we understand that once we get out of those Zoom calls and get out of those moments, it's back to, you know, trying to operate on brains for me and my brother being an educator, going back into the classroom and working through some of the difficulties with his students and just the normal daily lives and the rigmarole that we have to go through. But, uh, you know, the, the memories are serve as sort of an escape away from the realities that you uh, deal with every day. So you go from the games with your brothers in the yard to a very pressurized situation at Florida State, where like a lot of schools, football is a very big business, very serious business. People don't always associate that kind of sports environment with laughter. But what role has it played as an athlete, whether it's you know, in the locker room, in the huddle, just to get you through um, you know, the physical and mental stress of playing big time football? Well, Chris, for me, I think laughter helps with trying to ingratiate myself with my teammates. Uh, I came from a prep school in New Jersey, the Hunt School of Princeton. You know, I learned about Bill Bradley, trying to be a Rhodes Scholar there. I was I tucked my shirt in my pants. I had glasses. I spoke differently. I was a full-time <laughs> student. And then I go down to Florida State, Tallahassee, where you know, my teammates are listening to Rick Ross and had dreadlocks <laughs> and gold teeth and saying words like jit and, you know, drinking sweet tea, country fried steak. I mean, the whole culture was different. It was a shock to my system. And then trying to be familiar with these guys and trying to sort of, um, you know, ingratiate myself with them was difficult, right? I mean, I'm coming from a different world, prep school right. down to this rugged Tallahassee. You know, they called Florida State the criminals at one point. I mean, we were, um, you know, we were looked at sometimes as being thugs and just hard guys. And, um, you know, my teammates were coming from these very disenfranchised and um, poor neighborhoods and had a different way of life and different vernacular. So for me to find the common ground between me and them was laughter. It was things that we found to be funny, found to be, you know, light and um, away from the stress of our home life or our different cultural colloquialisms or things like that. Does that mean laughter at your own expense sometimes? Because they're looking at you thinking, what language is this guy speaking? And you're trying to, you're trying to bridge it with the laugh, but maybe you get, you got to make yourself the butt of the joke sometimes, right? When you try to get in with the group. No question. You have to. Uh, and, uh, you know, I remember one time one of the, my teammates, you know, asked me if I had a, if I had a jit or an old lady, and I said first, I was like, is that a bacteria or is that a car? I was like, I don't know what that is. And then an old lady, I was like, okay, I got a mother, but no, he was asking if I had a son and if I had a girlfriend, jit and an old lady. And I was like, oh my gosh! And they started busting out laughing at me. So yeah, they were laughing at me. But then eventually, I realized, okay, we both liked the show Martin, right? As sitcom, we both liked Fresh Prince of Bel Air. So if I could recite some of the jokes from Martin Lawrence or from Will Smith or from coming to America, some of the funny movies they like, in uh, key moments and put it in like right at the right time. The guys would start laughing. They'd be like, oh, this guy is kind of cool. You know, he's not like a square. He can kind of get along with us. So 
that was helpful for me. And uh, it kind of got us through it. And, and I think bridge that gap between the cultural yeah. difference between me and them for sure. Yeah. The short assistance between two people. That's what, that's what laughter has been called. I, you talk about team building, bonding. I think there's a way we'll get to the brain chemistry of it, but it releases inhibitions it immediately breaks things down. When, when people are sharing a laugh, I mean, for me, it's been very important in sparking a romance, uh, a kind of a shared laugh. If you have the shared laugh on the first date, probably going to be a second date or a third date if it's a good enough laugh. And I think that uh, you know, just as as couples evolve, laughter is so important, you know, day to day. The the high pressure stuff that you begin to get into when your medical career blossoms, and and that is that is very serious business. But give us a sense because I think it would surprise people not just on the front lines of the fight against COVID-19, which you played a part, but just average days in hospitals. There's always more humor and more laughter, I think, than people realize behind the scenes. Definitely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, especially in neurosurgery where the outcomes could be fatal and it could be terminal, right? You know, uh, we have a lot of patients who um, expire and pass uh, on our service. And you have to have these conversations with family members. You have to have conversations with the medical examiner's office, the coroner. I mean, it's, it's legit, it's real. Uh, and these are heavy and can certainly weigh you down, bog you down and really put a black cloud over you. But in order to sort of get through that, uh, my colleagues and I, our nurse practitioners, our phys physician assistants, uh, we share good moments, we share laughter, we share uh, comedic events, and we try to make make light of certain things so that we're able to sort of get through. It's a way for us to cope with these very difficult situations. And it's a way for us to sort of recenter. You sort of shake off the the, the stress and the um, you know the, the seriousness of, of your day-to-day -day life. We all know that, right? We've got that down, it's a part of it. We signed up for this, yes. Uh, but then if there's a moment where we can just sort of take a break and have, add some brevity um, to the whole situation, uh, that could uh, that could be helpful for us. And so um, I, I remember in the operating room when there was a six hour surgery, we were working on a brain tumor, took off the bone, opened up the meninges, got down to the brain tumor. Very difficult, very trying. You know, it was hard to get the vessels off of the, of the brain, or sorry, off of the tumor, uh, because if you just yanked on the tumor, then the vessels will come, everything will be torrentially mm -hmm. bleeding. And so we took a break, we took a pause. And I remember our attending telling us a joke that he heard from like, uh, a weird tape that he was listening to a couple of days ago. And it just like shocked us. It was such a pressure moment. And we were like, really? This is what you're gonna say right now? And we all just started laughing and like, you know, put our head down like, man, I can't believe it. But that was the moment of recentering and sort of getting us all back on the same page that we needed. We finished the case and everything went well. The patient woke up and went home two days later and we had no complications. So, you know, it definitely works in our field. Yeah, there's wisdom in that and understanding that having a laugh, pausing, for humor doesn't necessarily destroy the focus of working on a very detailed, difficult job and then ruin the performance that can actually have the opposite effect. I mean, I think that it's sometimes hard for football coaches to back up to Florida State. I don't know that Bobby Bowden is considered the funniest guy. I mean, people would have laughs unintentionally when he didn't know, but did, did coaches understand that? Because you talked about the teammates getting together, but the authority figures in football, whether it was there or the NFL, sort of understand that when players are joking around, it's not the worst thing in the world. Wow, that's a great point, Chris. I honestly, I think sometimes it's generational, man. I really do. I think, you know, like you said, Coach Bowden, then Coach Mickey Andrews, also from Alabama. These guys are old school, Paul Bear, Bryant guys. And, you know, you're laughing all the time. They're like, you know, why aren't you taking this seriously? But for us, you know, it was our way of, uh, of getting through. And so when coaches were able to sort of put their, their mindset into the life of a millennial, right, into the life of a younger their player, I think they were more effective. I think that's what you're seeing in Clemson. I, I feel like you have a coach there and their head coach, Sweeney, who's able to laugh and joke and maybe do the crazy dances with the players. That, to me, if I'm a recruit, seeing a coach sort of get down and, like, be light like that and laugh, I mean – that's amazing to me. That's like, okay, he's on our level and he understands us, he or she, right? Uh, and uh, I think Coach Andrews and Coach Bowden, they were a little bit disconnected from that just based on age and how they grew up and where their coaching philosophy came from. But some of our younger coaches, Jimbo Fisher, when he was our offense coordinator, mm -hmm. he was able to sort of come down and laugh with us and be there with us. And that was helpful. I think you're seeing coaches, particularly in college, at the at the younger generations understand that innately, trying to connect with the players, trying to break the tension. And if you're not dancing around in the locker room, if you're not cracking a joke, if you're trying to be serious all the time, 
then you're not connecting, I don't think, with the with the current athletes. So I think they're they're even if they're not funny themselves, they're trying to find a way to sort of inject some laughter in all that. As you, uh, I'll, I'll add to that too, Chris. Yeah. I think that um, you know I've been watching this uh, the documentary uh, on Michael Jordan, uh, The Last Dance, and seeing you know his leadership style and sort of thinking through like how I lead or how I would potentially lead versus how he leads and how other leaders lead, you know. And, and you think to some of those comments that were made in, in his documentary that, you know, he was a mean guy or maybe he was just so focused, so driven. We never saw Michael let up. He was so intense all the time. Um, you know, I guess that lets me, leads me to believe that, you know, if you have amazing, immaculate talent and you have a certain leadership style and people buy into that, that it could work. But for me personally, I just, I couldn't see myself leading a group of, you know, grown men uh, who all were talented enough to get to this level. Um, in a way where it was sort of fearful and you sort of had to drive a stake into them. I think I would share laughter with those guys. I think I would have those moments because I wanted them to see me as a human, as someone like them, uh, not so not disconnected. And I'm not saying Mike didn't have those experiences, but I think the what I got from it, the portrayal that I got from you know his documentary was that he was, he was tough, he drove a hard line, and uh, if you didn't fall in line, then you have to move away and move off of that line because he was getting somewhere. And it obviously worked because he was, you know, won six championships and was the greatest of all time. So there was some good behind the scenes stuff in the documentary and there was some laughter, but usually it was laughter by Michael at other guys' expense. It, it, it didn't go the other way too often. You notice that. <laughs> true. That's very true. Very, very true. Yeah. And I, yeah, there were very few people, I think, in that circle. I've, I've spent a little time with them. Very few people who would be gutsy enough to try to dig at him and get it and give it back to him and make him laugh. There's a few guys in his inner circle that can do that. And I think he respected guys who could, but you're right. The teammates were not really in a position to try to cross him in that way. So, yeah. So you go to Oxford, and again, you're trying to bridge differences coming from Tallahassee, coming from the States, but your background quite different than those uh, many other students who come from all over the place and are studying there. How, how did humor help bridge that situation or maybe ease whatever tension you had stepping into the uh, storied campus of Oxford? Yeah, so I was uh, intentionally trying to be careful uh, not to be... Um, you know, too uh, humorous when I went there because I was like, oh, they don't they don't think of me as a serious um, Oxford Oxonian uh, students, right? Uh, coming from the states, being a big football, so you're overcompensating. Person. You're trying to be Mister Serious, like eh. exactly, exactly. These people are leading with their intellectual capital and they're leading with their scientific discoveries and their research. And here is this big hulking football player from America leading with some humor. Uh, so I was very conscientious of it at first. But eventually I said, you know, I have to be myself. You know, I have to be who I am or, or else it's going to feel inorganic and, um, you know, unnatural and, and feel uncomfortable. Uh, and so it wasn't until this friend of mine, her name is Aisha Saad. She's a, a Muslim woman, wears, wears a hijab from Cary, North Carolina, went to USC Chapel Hill and was a road scholar with me who sat down with me at breakfast one time. and was like, Myron, you know, I know you're trying to fit in here. I know assimilation is difficult for you here for me too right i'm a muslim woman coming here you're a black man coming here but we have to be who we are uh they chose us for a reason and and so from that point forward you know i wasn't trying to bend towards anyone else i was sort of hey you want to if you if, if you accept me in this culture in this society uh then you should come to where i am because i'm going to be exactly who i am and and who they wanted through this road scholarship process and at that point, I'm not sure if anything changed on their end, but I know for me, my myopia, my perspective uh, really just it just took off because I was able to enjoy my time there. I was able to laugh with my friends. I was able to be who I was with Aisha and other Rhodes Scholars and other people I met at Oxford. And it made the whole experience enjoyable for sure. And that allowed me to build friendships with people from all over the world. Uh, Lusaka, uh, Zambia, from Perth, Australia, Cairo, Egypt, just have so many connections because I was who I was. I shared my personality and through my personality came laughter and humorous events. And it was great. Without being overly clinical, why does a good, long, deep laugh feel so damn good to the brain and the nervous system? <laughs> well, uh, so, okay, let me, let me try to be not overly clinical. Uh, cause I do love the brain as you know, uh, for a long time, you know, be as clinical as you want, but make, don't, don't leave us more confused than we were before you started talking. <laughs> All right. So let's, so there's, there's a part of the brain um, that is responsible for uh, involuntary laughter that's somehow connected to emotion. Um, and 
when you experience emotion. So it doesn't have to be just hearing. It could be seeing, it could be feeling, it could be touch. Um, you know, any sense that you have where your outside world is perceived as emotionally driven. This part of the brain is sort of in the middle part towards the temporal lobes, sort of on the side here. It sort of gets activated and it transmits a pathway down to the brainstem, which is basically the center of who we are, our existence in the central nervous system. Uh, that gets processed there. And then it, the response from the brainstem is changes uh, in our autonomic function. So what does that mean? That means your heart rate starts racing a little bit faster. means you may start sweating. means the lacrimal ducts may start going, you start crying. You know, and you have those belly laughters and like all the tears come out because, and you can't control it. You're like, why, why are tears coming out? Well, it's all sort of driven from the same area. Your respiratory um, status starts increasing a little bit. Obviously, you start breathing more or breathing differently in between laughs. Uh, and then also facial expression, as you had mentioned earlier. Uh, this is also controlled from the brainstem in that central processing area. So a lot of times when people laugh, they just have, people say their face lights up. The muscles of their face just start to sort of open up and eyes widen and things like that. So, you know, the brain is, uh, is amazing where it connects all these different parts of our bodies to show the response that um, you've perceived from this humorous memory, event, this feeling, this emotion. And that's, one pathway of laughter. Then there's other pathways of laughter that, you know, are, aren't really associated with emotion. Another one is laughing gas, for instance, right? You don't, you don't experiencing laughing gas, but you just get that. And then all, all, boom, all of a sudden you start laughing. We've had patients who we stimulated their brain because we're trying to operate around a certain tumor. Mm. We want to make sure we're not hitting the language functions and they start laughing in the operating room because they're awake still. Um, you know, and as I mentioned, sometimes seizures are classified as being gelastic seizures when you know associated with laughing being pathological so uh those are a different category but the one we're talking about and the one evoked by emotion uh starts there processed through the top of the brain in the central part down to the brainstem and uh, comes out that way and it's, a, it's an amazing beautiful network when it's all done for sure yeah it is beautiful it's amazing how fast it happens and amazing if you believe studies how long lasting the effects are we know it improves mood and can release stress and all that but the ability to reduce pain, to boost your immune system. You live longer if you laugh a little bit more often than, than the average person, which I think is that's what proof right there, the, the value of laughter. Is there a, a particular moment in this, this you know, grisly, heroic fight against COVID-19 when the, the shifts are just amazing, folks, yourself included, working marathon shifts where a long laugh has gotten you through one of those shifts or, or giving you the energy to come back and, and, you know, rejoin the battle. Yes, there has, um, you know, seeing some of my colleagues, um, talking with them, uh, we talk about how taking the stress of COVID-19 home with us is, is hard. You know, we talk to our families, they want to know all the stories about the patients, what's going on. Cause they're hearing about it on TV and then, they see you come home and like, well, what's really happening on the front lines? What's really happening in the hospital? Uh, I remember speaking to my wife and talking to her uh, on FaceTime, actually, and, um, you know, explaining to her about some of the, uh, the patients that I was you know, dealing with and some of the things I was seeing in emergency departments. And, you know, she just reminded me of, of a time that we had together um, where I was trying on sort of the gowns and the gloves, just sort of by myself to make sure I did it right. Because there's a proper way to gown and glove sterile and then take off those gowns and gloves. I was doing it and, you know, I was, wasn't doing it correctly. And, you know, you know, oh, big bad road scholar, you know, can, can think about <laughs> all these things that people are saying, you're the smartest athlete of all time and you can't even put on a gown and glove. I mean, just things like that. I'm like, man, okay, humble me, bring me down to where I need to be. Uh, and it was funny. It was great. It, it sort of said, okay, yeah, you know, you're not as hot as you think you are and uh, you can laugh at yourself and she can laugh at you and put it, all things into perspective. So I think that was a moment for me where I realized, okay, get off your high horse get down to where you need to get to because you're not the most important person in this equation. It's these patients who are going through this stuff. And if you're able to sort of, if laughter is able to break that tension, uh, then um, that, that's a good thing. And it happened for me. It's going to continue to be important because yourself and others who have spent the time on the front lines will carry forward some of the, the scars of, of what you've seen and what you felt there. I think laughter is going to continue to play a role. I know it's being used right now to help, treat patients who have dementia and Alzheimer's. My mom suffered from that. And, and to be able to bring in a comedian, um, there's, 
you know, laughter on call in LA, which brings in comedians and in, in, in a way that very few things can laughter can connect with these people whose brains are struggling to find clarity in the fog. And it's, it's, that's a beautiful thing. You try to have a good laugh every day, Myron. Is that, is that part of your daily ritual? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I have a good daily laugh, talk to my brother, my family, my friends. Um, social media is full of it. And the people I follow on social media are hilarious. My favorite comedians, I try to you know, check in with them a lot. So certainly uh, having a good laugh is, is important, daily part of life. Well, it's going to be amazing to watch your journey. You've got a book in the works, I know. You've got some travels to Africa and, and a lot of other chapters uh, in your life to write. It's been awesome to watch so far. Can't wait to see how the rest of it unfolds, Myron. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate it, man. So grateful to Dr. Myron Roll and to Gary Gullman and co-executive producer Jennifer Dempster and producer Jason Weichelt. Hope you'll subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I hope you have enough laughter in your daily life. It really helps to surround yourself with funny people if you can. Hope you and your significant other can make each other laugh a lot. It really is precious and crucial. And if you can, then you can tell each other, all I'm after is a life full of laughter, as long as I'm laughing with you. We'll let Daughtry have the last word on laughter here. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.